0: Philippine journalist Maria Ressa's acquittal, tensions flare at a nickel factory in Indonesia, and tourism picks up in the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is January 26, 2023. On today's show...
1: In Vietnam, we have a tradition that uh, we always clean our house before day. So people take this as the... Communist Party of Vietnam trying to clean the house before they, with chopping down three very senior politicians just a few days before they. That.
0: that was our guest, Nguyen Phuong Lin, on why Vietnamese President Nguyen Chuan Phuong Phuc's resignation happened right before the Lunar New Year. If you want to learn more about the shakeups in Vietnam's leadership over the past month, stay with us. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, I am very excited to welcome Arin Chunasetian to the studio. Arin is a former intern with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS and is a current student in the School of Foreign Studies at Georgetown University. Hi, Karen. So, Arin, as a fellow Thai, I have a very important question for you. Do you or do you not agree that pad kapau is a superior dish to pad Thai?
2: Definitely agree. Well, pad ka pow or stir-fried holy basil is really a simple dish and you can find it anywhere in Thailand. All you got to do in 10 minutes, if you cook, it's really simple. You just make a paste out of uh, garlic and red Thai chili and then throw whatever meat in there. The holy trinity of Thai sauce is, you know, fish sauce, oyster sauce, black soy sauce. And then, bam, voila, there you go.
0: Thank you. Okay, at the risk of turning this into a cooking show, I'm going to jump into the headlines. Let's start with encouraging news from the Philippines. The acquittal of journalist Maria Ressa. Last week, the Philippine Court of Tax Appeals acquitted Ressa of tax evasion charges brought by the Philippine Justice Department under the previous administration of Rodrigo Duterte. She faced four charges and would have served a maximum sentence of 34 years if convicted. The Nobel laureate pulled no punches when celebrating the verdict, taking aim at the Duterte administration for its, quote, brazen abuse of power in suppressing critical journalism. Ressa's news organization, Rappler, earned a reputation for its in-depth and objective reporting of Duterte's anti-drug campaign.
2: But this isn't a victory lap. Ressa won the battle here, not the war. She was convicted for cyber libel in 2020, and she still has to appeal her conviction with the Philippine Supreme Court or face a six-year prison sentence. Not only that, she also faces a separate tax case, and Rappler has yet to regain its operating license, which was revoked by the Philippine Securities and Exchange Commission in 2018.
0: Staying on a serious note and moving to Indonesia, violence flared up at a nickel smelting facility in Sulawesi last week, resulting in the deaths of two workers. Protests for higher pay and safety standards escalated into a riot as protesters set fire to multiple company vehicles, dormitories, and equipment. Two workers, one Indonesian and one Chinese, died in the fray, and more than 500 members of the security forces were deployed to secure the area. 71 people were detained over the incident, according to Indonesia's national police chief.
2: Gunbuster Nickel Industry, or GNI, the Chinese subsidiary operating the facility, released a statement saying it would investigate the incident together with Indonesian police. But critics have questioned whether the company will address the root causes of the conflict, particularly worker health and safety. Tensions had risen after a workplace accident last December, where two Indonesian workers were burned to death. And a former Indonesian employee said other fatal lapses had occurred in the past year. The minister responsible for mining, Luhut Panchay plans to meet with GNI management this week.
0: It's important to note that the violence is part of an emerging trend, not a one-off incident, as concerns over mining industry labor standards have triggered a series of protests in Sulawesi. Indonesia's nickel export ban has pushed foreign investors to build their own processing smelters in the country. And it's likely that we'll continue to see similar incidents as more and more mining companies set up shop in the mineral-rich region. It's a stark reminder that FDI has second- and third-order consequences.
2: On the positive side of FDI, though, a Japanese-backed train station has finally fully opened for business in Bangkok. On January 19, the Krungthep Apiwat Central Terminal began long-distance rail service after partially opening for commuter trains in 2021. Yen-denominated lending covered about 80% of construction costs, and Japanese companies like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Hitachi provided the train, cars, and electrical and mechanical systems.
0: I knew you were going to put a Thailand story in here somewhere. The station is Southeast Asia's largest and is also supposed to have high-speed rail services at some point, right?
2: Well, that part is a little more complicated. A consortium led by Thailand's CP Group won a contract in 2019 to build a high-speed rail link between three major international airports, Don Mueang, Suwanapum and U that was supposed to begin operating in 2024. But construction has still not begun amid negotiations over land rights and payment. Without high-speed rail service, traffic through the station will likely fall short of projections and jeopardize Thailand's plans to develop the area around the station into a smart city. Despite these challenges, though, Japan remains the largest and most significant infrastructure partner for Southeast Asia.
0: Taking a bigger picture view, it looks like the tourism sector in Southeast Asia is finally getting more business. Pre-pandemic, the industry accounted for about 12% of the region's GDP before revenue plummeted in 2020 and 2021. In 2022, Thailand, Singapore, and Indonesia saw the number of arrivals return to a quarter of pre-pandemic levels. Theme parks and luxury hotels in particular are seeing a boom. Thailand expects to earn $64 billion in tourism revenue in 2023, while Singapore hopes to bring in up to $14.3 billion.
2: Many Southeast Asian countries are also keeping their entry restriction lax for Chinese tourists as they begin venturing abroad. Chinese travelers accounted for 22% of visitors to Southeast Asia before the pandemic, And Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Thailand are currently not requiring pre-departure COVID tests for inbound travelers from China, a contrast to restrictions being put in place by other countries. Although there have been some calls for caution, the state of Sabah, for example, is requiring Chinese visitors to be fully vaccinated and show negative test results before departure to Malaysia. Southeast Asia as a whole has been eager to welcome back visitors.
0: The resumption of international travel has also come with challenges for the hospitality industry, however. One is a labor shortage and competition for talent. Like in other sectors, hospitality businesses had to cut jobs during the pandemic, and raising wages to offset the long working hours could cut into the industry's earnings. Rather than looking at this as a cost, though, hopefully the industry sees raising wages as a way of investing in their workers.
2: And speaking of investment, Singapore launched a five-year visa program this month targeting elite talent in the hopes of attracting more foreign investment. The Overseas Networks and Expertise Pass is aimed at professionals earning at least $22,300 per month who work in finance, technology, academia, sports, and the arts. Last September, Thailand introduced a similar 10-year renewable visa for highly skilled professionals and it has since drawn almost 2,000 applicants, mostly from the US, Europe, and China. Ad Malaysia has a premium visa program that allows people with an annual offshore income of $112,000 U.S. dollars to stay for up to 20 years.
0: I will need a lot more work experience before I hit that income bracket. I think that wraps up our headlines. Thanks for coming by, Aaron.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Up next, Greg and Lin discuss Vietnam's unprecedented political changes over the past month. If you want to know why Salt Bay is included in the conversation, stay tuned.
3: Welcome back, listeners. I am Greg Poling, and uh, unfortunately, I am not joined today by my normal co-host, Alina Noor. Alina is tied up uh, in Kuala Lumpur, but I do have a wonderful guest with me today, Wen Phuong Lin. Lin is a uh, Vietnam analyst based in Singapore and a former journalist with Reuters NFT, and she's here to help us make sense of the pretty seismic upheaval in Vietnam's political system over the last couple of weeks, and particularly the past weekend, uh, which has been admittedly, I think, very confusing for everybody who's not a member of the Communist Party of Vietnam and is trying to sift through all the gossip and noise. So, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Hi, Greg. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm not sure I can help you to understand what's going on in Vietnam because I myself also feel confused.
3: Well, that seems to be the spirit of the debate right now around what's, what's happened. So let me set the stage for our, our listeners a little bit, and then we can just do our best to make some, discern some signal from the noise. So, most recently, two days ago on January 17th, Vietnamese President Nguyen Xuan Phuc resigned, formally resigned from his position. Uh, as president. And then a day later, Vietnam's National Assembly formally dismissed him. He allegedly resigned of his own accord. Of course, everybody assumes that this was engineered essentially for months as the latest of of a series of senior officials caught up in these two massive corruption scandals that have emanated from the COVID-19. So the first being the bribes solicited by Vietnamese officials, dozens of Vietnamese officials all over the world for repatriation flights for Vietnamese citizens stuck abroad, in which something like $200 million was was extracted overall from, from all of these poor uh, citizens just, just trying to get home. And the second, which maybe was closer to, to President Phuc, uh was the situation with Viet a, a pharmaceutical company that had developed a PCR test kit and allegedly paid out pretty significant bribes to effectively corner the market with Vietnamese hospitals using their, their test kits and then jacked up the prices of those. And that, I understand, involved some people relatively close to the president's wife. So in any case, the president has now been ousted nominally because these corruption scandals happened during his tenure when he was previously the prime minister. And we should note that this follows just a couple weeks after the previously seismic ousting of the former health minister, Vu duk and former foreign minister and deputy prime minister, Fan Bin Min, who was also a member of the Politburo, They were both forced out at the beginning of January. Now, that's a lot for people to try to make sense of. I guess the first place we should start is, is this really about corruption? Is this about factional infighting? Is it about General Secretary Chom consolidating control and pushing a potential rival out of the way? Or is it all of that?
1: Wow. You just summarize all the complexity of what happened in Vietnam within like two minutes perfectly is it just corruption is it something else I think you already answer your own questions that it is like a combination of many different things of course there element of corruptions here but the in the countries where with rampant corruptions and very limited capacity from the government to investigate and execute the questions normally is like uh, why is them? Why is Fook and these two DPM, but not anyone else? Why now? Why these companies, but not others? When you look into, for example, you mentioned Fook's family business and his wife's family's business. The question is, so why are they touching into Viet but not other businesses? I really think that uh, there's a strong element of political infighting in this one as well. And here's an interesting piece of information. So Phuc was uh, forced to step, step down just a few days before a long Lunar New Year break, which is really a groundbreaking in Vietnam. Like you don't lose your job before Tate. So it's something really embarrassing for him. And also in Vietnam, we have a tradition that uh, we always clean our house before Tate. So people take this as the Communist Party of Vietnam trying to clean the house before they We're chopping down three very senior politicians just a few days before Tet, uh, you could look at that as like cleaning corruption, help cleaning the parties and the business environment. But on the other hand, you could also say that because they don't want to leave those people any time during tit for counter reaction. So let's just scrap everything before Tet, then everyone can be happy and <laughs> uh, have a Lunar New Year break.
3: I think one of the Things that, as you indicated, makes this difficult for people to process is that the anti-corruption campaign has been a signature of General Secretary Wen chom for most of his tenure in office, which extends now over a decade. But it, it's a system that is highly corrupt. I mean, every one assumes that a whole lot of senior officials have, if not direct involvement, growth themselves, and the kinds of shady family connections that allegedly are bringing down. President Fook, and certainly have overseen corrupt officials, which is what Femmin Min and Fook are both blamed for here, not that they were directly involved in corruption, but they failed to do their jobs and engage in oversight, which naturally leads people to assume that the the prosecutions, the censures, et cetera, have been selective. And that draws natural parallels to China, where we also have a Communist Party leader, unprecedented third term engaged in now a long anti-corruption campaign, which people point out tends to only strike at those who are seen as being in the wrong faction. So I, I suppose one of the questions that maybe it's impossible to answer from the outside is how deeply held is General Secretary Trump's commitment to combating corruption versus how much is the anti-corruption campaign a tool of political infighting for him to consolidate power for his own preferred factions and his own preferred successors?
1: Yes, it's a very important question. And you just mentioned it's uh, absolutely like this corruptions really deeply inside the political system in Vietnam, which also expands into business as well. So how deep can party keep rich into that? Or this is just like a tool for him to collect his power and like clip the wings of his oppositions. Uh, I mean, there's no oppositions in Vietnam, but like from other factions. I have to say that, let's go back to the story of Phuc. He didn't really learn the lesson from himself. So 15 years ago, he was a chairman of the government office and no one thought that he could be the deputy prime minister, like standing deputy prime minister but by playing low-key and keep low-profile in the government office, he managed to be in that position because people thought that he's safe. He's not going to challenge their power, their position. And then after that, no one even thought that he could be prime minister. But here you go. He was seen as, like another time, a safe choice for everyone else because no one could see him as a threat to their position or to their way to grab power. And at that time, it was like mainstream was like the fight between with Fu Chok and uh Wit Denzhuk, the former Prime Minister. So if Fuck just keep the low-key like that, I believe that he might be able to survive another term. But the problem with him is he tried to be grab more power, uh tried to raise to be the party chief uh in the party congress three years ago. That's where people see that, oh, so he's not just want to be someone who is low-key, friendly prime minister, but he also want more power, either for himself or for his families as well, then that's where he's knocked him down because uh put him in the spotlight of Muit Phu Chok, who could see him as a threat to push his successor, the one that he chose, to to, to assist him. So that's why we see that the anti-corruption generated by chop uh, started, let's say, intensively since 2016. But during like a couple of years ago, we only saw it cracked out on uh, SOE officers, uh, mid-level officer, a few ministers and one politburo figure, but never sees reach to deputy prime minister and ex and president. Although presidency is like a more ceremonial position in Vietnam, but for Vincent Pook because he was a Prime Minister before, and he also like is seen by foreign leaders, uh, foreign investors, as like an ambassador of Vietnam to the world. So it is very important. So this is quite unprecedented, not very unprecedented, that they reach into two DPM and one president. So really, the question now is, could this be further? And can Wenfuchang reach deeper? Or that's it, that's the end of the game. Uh, don't forget that we're going to have the midterm party congress n- next year. That's normally where the infightings more intense.
3: So I, I I struggle to figure out just how much we should believe that Wen Shu Chong has been able to consolidate power in recent years. Because on the one hand, he is currently in an unprecedented third term. He just ousted a president the first time ever that a Vietnamese president has been forced out, and, and I think the first time ever that any of the f- top four, the four pillars of leadership, have ever been forced out. He defeated both uh, Phuc and, before that, Thuong when they tried to challenge his role as general secretary. He famously was the first ever dual headed leader when uh, when he took over, in 2017, the presidency alongside the general secretary position when, when Dai Quam passed, and I suppose it's possible that that happens again if there's no consensus candidate in May. We can touch on that, but before we do, all of that suggests that he is unprecedented, at least in recent decades, in his grip on the party. But at the same time, one gets the sense that he doesn't want to be the general secretary right now. He's the general secretary for a third term precisely because he couldn't force consensus for his preferred successor in the last party Congress that the fact that Fook is even still was even still there, even if he was busted on the president, shows that, that Trump doesn't have complete control over the party. He's not Xi Jinping. He, he still, even if he's first among equals, rules in a system of consensus and factions that have to be balanced against each other. So I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on just how successful he has been at consolidating power and whether or not we think he's really any closer to what seems to be his ultimate goal, which is to finally be able to retire, but be able to retire and give power to somebody he can trust, which he so far hasn't been able to do.
1: Yes, exactly. I absolutely agree with you. Number one, I'm not sure he's as happy being there for so long as people might think. And number two, he's not that as powerful as many of us might think as well. Like he couldn't get his choice of party chief three years ago. He has to compromise with other people to put them in the top four positions. So is he that powerful? I don't think so. I think it was a, an arrangement for everyone that made them like happy enough to stay for a couple more years before there's another infighting. So the question is, uh, has he been successfully laid all the, the resource and the way for his next choice of uh, successors? There's several speculations at the moment that. I believe um, his number one choice is the head of the National Assembly, Vương Binh who was supposed to be the prime minister three years ago because he was a, a very competent uh, DPM before that. But then it was a surprise that he served as the head of the National Assembly. But if you look at Nguyen Fu Chong's career, he was also the party chief of Hanot government of Hanot and also uh, the head of National Assembly before he became the secretary general. So Huệ also has a very similar career path compared to Fu I believe he could be the number one choice. And either, in order to push Huệ to be in that position, to be a party chief, uh, of course, Chok has to do all the way to I could either weaken other factions or chop them down of the race. And so far, he successfully put foot off the map. There might be a few other candidates in this. But as I often say, Vietnamese politics normally, unlike in China, where we see candidates very clear five years, even 10 years ahead. But in Vietnam, everything just start getting more intense, closer to the day. Like Even two years ago, it was very last minute that we heard that Phạm Minh Ching become the prime minister because he never served at the DPM before. It's really early to say that whether the game already says everything's already set and people are happy. We, we have to wait closer to the date.
3: Yeah, it, it often feels like we are, you know, we're listening to high school gossip in the halls about, you know, who's who's going to be the the prom queen, who's going to get the varsity jacket, and you never you never actually know. And there's always twelve different names. And, and often I, you know, I think after the, the last party, conference is an excellent example. It's almost as if you are analyzing the shadows of these things to try to guess what's really happening. Right, the absence of things is often more more instructive, so you look and see what didn't happen, what, what Trump was not able to accomplish, which of the rumors didn't come true, and then work backwards and extrapolate, okay, what might've happened within the various factions that we that we can't see. And to that point, one maybe noteworthy aspect of this this case is that while they were, were able to engineer Fuchs' resignation, and then the National Assembly formally met in an extraordinary session the next day and formally expelled him, they did not at that session name his replacement so instead vice president Votian Chuan is acting president at least until the next assembly meeting in may should we read that as a further sign that there's not quite consensus yet that trump was able to get out but wasn't necessarily able to have his preferred successor for that role already in place
1: that's interesting uh, tech that's an interesting tech I mean, number one, I normally just look at the president as um, ceremonial position. It's not that important compared to other countries, so you don't have much power or like decision-making power when you're in that position. It's more like showing your face to meet country leaders from around the world. Is that because uh, so they put Menti Aung Sun in because she's like a safe uh, arrangement for now, and they wait until in a couple of months. I actually don't know. Of course, we know that she she won't be the president. Oh No, I mean, not 100%, but uh, very unlikely that she could be a permanent president. There are two likely options for now. Number one, Chuck take dual hat again uh, with his health uh, conditions and age. I don't think that could be an ideal choice because uh, even a couple of years ago when he was president, he rarely showed up in any meeting. He didn't show up in APEC. It was like Fook who was uh, at APEC. Whereas normally it should be a president showing up there. So I don't think Trump's won that position. So there's um, a few other candidates who's like senior minister in some key ministries in Vietnam. I think the timing here is also quite tricky because uh, you really don't want something too shocking to the population or so to the cabinets before Ted because you're going to have a long break like for around two weeks. And the tradition in Vietnam is people don't really work very seriously uh, two, three weeks after that, So if you appoint a new boss ahead of them, then and you go home and have a break for a month. Uh, I don't think it could be uh, a good arrangement for all the offices. Uh, so I think it makes sense for them to let just whoever they wanted to appoint to be the permanent president to wait a little bit and let someone to be in an interim position there, because doing Tetna one worked anyway. I could love to see a female president in Vietnam, but uh, maybe the country needs to want to wait a few more years until that happens.
3: You made a very good point referencing Chong's advanced age and his poor health. And as I recall, the trip in October that he made to Beijing to you know congratulate Xi Jinping after the Chinese Communist Party Congress, that was his first trip abroad since he suffered a stroke, right? So it's... He hadn't traveled abroad in years, um, which would suggest that he is not fit to be the titular head of state, the, the president, whose, whose only job, as he said, is to travel and see other foreign leaders, really. The name that I've heard floated as the most likely, successor, uh, most likely candidate then in May would be Minister of Public Security Tolam. Does that seem like the leading candidate as far as the chatter?
1: Yes, that's also the name that I heard being circulated around. But uh, Ptolemy is also not flawless. Recently, he was involved in a scandal with uh, some golden beefsteak during his trip in London, which was hilarious.
3: Right, with that uh, was uh, Salt Bay's restaurant, right? He got the, the multi thousand dollar gold steak um, on a bureaucrat salary.
1: Yes, it was uh, that one. He's a strong candidate to that position. Uh, but that scandal's really like um, a big flaw for him. but the problem with having Tolum I couldn't say the problem but the, the questions if we have Tolam being a president is whether it uh, indicates that more inward emphasis and focus more on domestic security that's how like the party want to reorientation its policies or Vietnam still it seems as... Um, countries open economic policies and international integration uh, I think that moves really important for like observers like us just to see what way what strikes East Vietnam want to to do next
3: I think we could keep talking about the speculative aspects of this for a while and it would be fun but I think maybe one area we should close on is an area that I really haven't heard much discussion about which is do we have any idea how people in Vietnam are actually reacting to this news. As you say, they're about to go on holiday for Tet. Nobody expected this, I assume, outside of the party leadership. And of course, public opinion is tightly controlled and the media even more so. But do we have any sense how big a shock this really is to the average citizen?
1: Good questions. As I normally explain to people, that when you talk about Vietnamese people on the internet or like almost hundred. million people, populations of the country. So on the internet, people are surprised, uh, confused why two DPMs was ousted at the same time, which never happened in Vietnam. So what does that mean for the policies? Uh, because DPM are important positions in Vietnam, involving a lot of business decisions, uh, which involve directly to those like to Vietnamese people, everyday life. But uh, talking about like general, ordinary people, um, having a new president, reading the letter during Tet New Year's Eve is uh, something quite strange to them and quite shocking to them. I spoke to some of my neighbours in Vietnam, like some old neighbours. How do you think about that news? And they said that uh, that could be interesting to have a female president reading the letters this year. Um, so I think the, the timing is people really wanted to, to like, uh, let's grab up everything and have a break. Um, and maybe they will feel more the, the impact of that after Ted when it, 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 it affects more of their everyday life.
3: I hadn't processed it this way before, but that, that does seem somewhat brilliant. I mean, there's a, there's a well-known and, and as I'm sure you know, for journalists, very frustrating tendency here in Washington for the government to release bad news on Friday afternoons because nobody's going to want to cover it over the weekend. And I suppose it, this, you know, releasing something like this, making something like this happen on the eve of Tet is, is like that times 10. Nobody wants to deal with it. They're on their way out the door for holiday. Lynn, thank you so much. For, for helping us try to at least frame this discussion and make a little bit of sense of it. I, I really, really appreciate it. I also appreciate all of you for listening uh, again, and uh, please tune in for our next episode when I promise Alina will be back to be more interesting uh, and more uh, lucid than I am.
1: Thanks, Greg. Happy everyone who's celebra- celebrating Lunar New Year. <laughs>
0: for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us at searadio at csis.org with any comments, questions, or feedback, and we'll be sure to answer any burning queries you may have.
2: Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us.
0: Our producer is Marla Hiller, and our intern is Mike Tiernan. Our host today was Greg Poling. I'm Karen Lee.
2: And I'm Aaron Chinasatian,
0: And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.